0: Gresham College presents Myalgic Encephalomyelitis, Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, Not Just Tired All the Time, by Dr. Alistair Miller. Great. Thanks very much, Sir Roderick, and it's a pleasure to be here. It was uh, was pouring down with rain when I left Cumbria at uh, 8 o'clock this morning, so it's nice to be in the sunshine in London. Uh, I I was thinking about it, and I think it's almost exactly 30 years since I saw my first patients with ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, when I was a registrar training in infectious diseases in in Birmingham. And my professor at the time, Alistair Geddes, who is um, a very uh, senior figure in in British infectious disease practice, admitted this patient to uh, East Birmingham Hospital and said, I just don't know what's wrong with this girl, she was perfectly well, she had a glandular fever type illness, Um, she was a university student, very fit uh, sports player and now six months after her glandular fever type illness she's completely debilitated, she hasn't got back to her course, Uh, she has muscular pain, she hasn't been able to do any sport at all. And and we admitted her. This was, as I say, in 1985. So it was just at the time that HIV was emerging as a a big issue. And, you know, we we were all devastated to have somebody who had previously been so well and was so severely disabled by this condition. Uh, And she was in hospital for about a week while we did a large number of investigations. Now, you can never imagine anybody with ME being admitted to a hospital now for a week to have investigations. But in in those days, perhaps we had a little less pressure on our beds. So that made a big impact on me. And and I've been, as an infectious disease physician, I've been involved in seeing patients with ME really for the last 30 uh, 30 years. So I know, obviously, the... uh, I don't know the background of anybody in this room really, apart from one or two, um, and I don't know how many of you have any medical knowledge, but I thought if I'm going I'm to be talking about things like syndromes, symptoms, signs, so it's, it's important that people have a, a, a rudimentary understanding of these. So symptoms are what people complain of. When when a patient says, I've got a headache, uh, I have abdominal pain, um, I'm forgetting things, those are symptoms. That's what a a patient complains of, as as we say. And and as clinicians, we, we extract those symptoms from patients. We ask them to tell us about them, and that's called taking a history. And then we go on and we examine the patient and we find objective abnormalities, what are called physical signs when we examine the patient. So a physical sign would be a lump in the abdomen, a swollen gland in the neck, a fever that's measured objectively by temperature. And taken together, symptoms and signs are what we call the clinical features of an illness. So that, that's something that's made up by um, uh, just a clinician without doing any laboratory tests or anything. And with the clinic, when we put the clinical features together, that may suggest to us a possible diagnosis. And diagnosis means saying you know, what's going on with the patient. There are various levels at which a diagnosis can be made. Um, But once we've we've thought about a diagnosis, we then need to confirm it or think about other potential diagnoses or exclude other potential diagnoses. And we do this by uh, doing a whole series of what are called investigations. So this includes all the laboratory tests, whether it's on blood, whether it's on urine, whether it's on biopsy specimens and somebody looking down a microscope at at disordered uh, cellular architecture, whether it's sophisticated immunological testing. And it includes, of course, The wide spectrum of imaging facilities and modalities that we have available these days of of magnetic resonance imaging, CT scanning, X-rays, ultrasound, etc. So we take the clinical features, we get a list of diagnoses potentially, we try and confirm those and refine those by doing investigations. So what's a syndrome? Well, a syndrome is a, a collection of symptoms and signs. So it's a collection of clinical features that together make up a recognised pattern. And I've, I've put an example of a syndrome there. A patient comes into the emergency room with a headache, fever, neck stiffness. That's a syndrome that would suggest to an emergency room doctor, that this patient has a condition called meningism. That's, that's infl- I- irritation of the meninges, the things lining the brain. We would then do a lumbar puncture on that patient and objectively demonstrate that there's inflammation of the, of the covering of the brain. That, that makes the condition meningitis. So that's, that's a more sophisticated diagnosis now. And then we go on and we would grow perhaps the bacteria that's causing that meningitis. And we say the patient has meningococcal meningitis. So we now have a a much more sophisticated level of diagnosis that will enable us to, to treat the patient. And then we go on to what's called management. And again, this is a term that, that doctors use all the time, and it's, it's important. And, and we're not talking about you know, NHS managers restricting our resources and things. We're talking about how we manage the patient. So management, it's, it's more than treatment. It encompasses, encompasses the whole way that we, we talk to patients, we talk to relatives, um, we communicate with our, our colleagues to, to help with the diagnosis, we communicate with our Therapists, another non-medical staff, nursing staff, uh, uh, physiotherapists, etc., to, to help with the overall management of the patient. And there are two aims. When we when in any illness, we we aim to do two things. We first of all, we want to improve the natural history of that illness or improve the prognosis of that illness. Uh, and I'll give you an example of that. So, somebody who has Coronary heart disease, very common problem, furring up of the coronary arteries, leading to potential risks of heart attacks, uh, uh, but also giving a condition called angina, which is chest pain on exertion. So when we deal with somebody with coronary heart disease, we first of all want to stop them having a heart attack, so that may involve different drugs to reduce the risk of that, or possibly coronary artery surgery, or, or these days more commonly uh, what's called um, primary um, uh, percutaneous uh, uh, coronary intervention that's putting a catheter in and blowing up a coronary artery. So, we want to do that to improve the natural history and the prognosis, stop the patient having a heart attack. But equally well, we want to stop the symptoms, we want to stop them feeling unwell, we want to stop their angina. So, that's what medical management aims to do. We aim, we aim to improve prognosis and relieve symptoms. So, that's just background to this complex and, and, as Sir Roderick said, controversial condition uh, called chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. And I'll, I'll talk a bit more about the name because the name is an issue. A little bit about the history. Um, it's been around for a long time. And I think probably one of the most famous early patients or early sufferers from um, um, from CFSME was, uh, was Florence Nightingale, who, after the Crimean War, was unable to um, receive more than one visitor at a time. It was virtually house for for several years after the Crimean War. But there were other uh, outbreaks of, of this condition uh, and other famous people who, who clearly suffered from it, and it, it was called neurasthenia in the, in the 19th century. The term M.E. was first coined um, by uh, a clinician called Melvin Ramsey in 1955, and that photograph there is the, the current Royal Free Hospital, um, but this outbreak happened in the old Royal Free Hospital in the Strand in, in um, in 55 when there was an outbreak of a feverish illness of a viral type illness amongst hospital staff and amongst a, a large number of patients and i think there were about 300 people involved altogether the hospital was actually closed by this outbreak there were about 70 members of the clinical staff who were unwell with this condition and the main feature of the condition was 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 fever was swollen glands um, was uh, muscular pain hence the myalgia that's, that's the, the technical term for muscular pain uh, and also there were what we call cognitive difficulties that's a term I'll use quite a lot in this lecture it means you know, people's thinking is just not straight, it's a bit muddled and I'll enlarge on that in a bit uh, they also had what's called paresthesia, that's t- uh, tingling in, in um, nerves uh, tingling in, in the extremities so, because of that, they, they called the condition myalgic uh, encephalomyelitis. So, myalgic meaning muscular pain, encephalomyelitis meaning inflammation of the brain and spinal cord, which they assumed was what was causing the cognitive problems and then the, uh, and the, and the um, paresthesia. And that That outbreak was thoroughly investigated. We obviously didn't, although I wasn't around in those days, but they didn't have the sophisticated virological techniques to try and identify what had caused this outbreak, and it remains a mystery. But people were quite disabled afterwards for months afterwards, and that was probably the first really good description of ME. Unfortunately, in, in 1960, there were two British psychiatrists who reviewed this, this outbreak and came to the conclusion it was, was mass hysteria and it wasn't a viral infection at all. And that's really what, you know, and that kind of tension between physical and, and, and psychiatric diagnosis, as, as we've already heard from the provost, was, um, is, is something that persists today. The next big thing, I suppose, I put it on the map was the. Um, some of you will uh, just remember the term yuppies, which was used in the 80s for young, upwardly mobile professionals who were uh, people in the US and particularly in, in the City of London who were involved in privatisations and things. Um, and there were a lot of uh, affluent yuppies living around Lake Tahoe in California on a skiing holiday, and there was a big outbreak of infectious disease, another viral illness then, and they were... They were hit with this debilitating illness afterwards, and that was actually termed yuppie flu at the time. And that was the first time that, that it was really defined by the uh, American uh, Centers for Disease Control, uh, and then they subsequently refined that diagnosis in 1994. And then since then, there have been another, uh, a number of other landmark, uh, landmark trials. There was, a, there was a college of physicians, psychiatrists and GP report in 1996, Um, The Chief Medical Officer Liam Donaldson produced a report in 2002 and that really led to the, that was the first, the the, the start of the NHS services for CFSME really uh, involved in in 2002 and then NICE um, National Institute for Clinical Excellence did a report on produced (coughs) guidelines in 2007 which I'll come back to because they remain quite controversial And then the NICE guidelines were supported by a large clinical trial in 2011, which again I'll allude to. And probably the most important thing that's happened recently is a report called the um, Institute of Medicine Report from the US, which has just been published, and I'll allude to that later on. So it's a huge problem, as we've heard. Um, An awful lot of GP appointments are about fatigue. A lot of people will go to their GP and say, I feel fatigued. Um, uh, But I think the important thing about fatigue is that fatigue is not chronic fatigue syndrome. I think that's a really important thing to get across. There are a lot of people who do feel tired all the time for a variety of reasons, but they don't have chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome is a a very separate and very specific diagnosis. And and that's probably one of the most important points I want to get across today. And as I've said, there's a lot of controversy about the name. I've told you how the name ME was first coined, Yuppie Flu was first coined. and, And I guess the girl that I was talking about at East Birmingham, we probably labelled her as having post-viral fatigue syndrome. That was a common uh, term used in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, as I've said, chronic fatigue syndrome was first really called that by the by the Americans in, in 1994. Um, it was thought at that time to be related to chronic viral infections like the Epstein-Barr virus that produces glandular fever. Um, in 2002, the... And there's been a lot of tension between some of the clinical communities who've preferred to call it CFS and some of the patient communities who've preferred the term ME. And there's been, you know, some people even say they're different conditions. Um, but the two, so the 2002 and the accepted term these days is CFS ME just because of that um, uh, tension between uh, different names. And to me, it, it doesn't really matter what you call it, and you'll see I tend to flip between CFS, ME, CFS, ME, ME, CFS. Another term that you will see is the, an American term called, where they call it chronic fatigue and immunodeficiency syndrome because it was thought it may be related to immune problems, but that you don't see used anymore. And interestingly, the 2005, uh, 2015 report that I alluded to Uh, from the Institute of um, Medicine has suggested it should be called systemic exertion intolerance disease which is a a horrible mouthful and I'm not sure it's going to gain any traction amongst clinicians or patients but we shall see. Okay so who looks after chronic fatigue syndrome? Well there's no such thing you cannot train uh, in medicine as a consultant in chronic fatigue syndrome. It's mainly general practitioners who will see the most uh, most people with it um, and, and say so there's no specialist training and indeed it doesn't even figure in a lot of uh, undergraduate curricula and this is something that from the British Association for CFS and ME we're trying to to rectify this. But, of course, because of the multiplicity of symptoms, it can actually turn up to a large number of specialists. So, so a large number of doctors need to be aware of this condition. And, it may, uh, and patients may turn up in an infectious disease clinic, in a neurology clinic, endocrinology Etc. And these specialist services tend to be led by whoever's got that particular interest and expertise, because obviously the best person to look after a patient with CFSME is somebody who's seen a lot of it and has a, uh, an empathetic approach to it. So what is it? And this, this again, is is controversial. This this is the so-called FACUDA criteria. And this was a chap who worked at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. He, he's actually been on the news. Well, he was on the news a few years ago because he was heading up the CDC response to pandemic flu. So he's obviously moved on from uh, CFS into flu. Um, but this was the definition that he, he drew up in this um, <coughs> in this article in 1994, and it, it it remains probably the most commonly used definition, uh, and it is. It is dominated, as you can see, by fatigue. And the reason that some of the patient groups don't like it is it doesn't really... And I think that's absolutely valid criticism. It doesn't really encompass all the features um, that you have to have to make a diagnosis of CFS. I mean, all those things. Yes, clinically evaluated fever going on for more than six months. Now, the NICE guidelines have suggested we bring that down to four months. And, in fact, I think you know, if you see somebody in two or three months into their illness, if, if they've got all the other features, you can... Um, fairly confidently make a diagnosis and they have to have at least four of these other features so sore throat swollen glands cognitive dysfunction myalgia etc but that's fine. I mean, th- these definitions and things are great for clinical trials, they're great for um, epidemiology and people collecting statistics, but how do we actually do it in practice? How do I sit in my clinic and say this patient has um, CFSME? Well, a lot of people will say it's a diagnosis of exclusion, and that's a term that we use in medicine quite a lot. That we what we do is we say, well, you know, what could be causing these particular symptoms? Could it be X, Y, or Z? And then we do a couple of tests to say that it's not Y and Z and therefore it must be X. And and CFSME because there's no diagnostic test, there's no what we call a biomarker. So totally different from my HIV clinic. You know, I, and I used to do the two clinics sort of back to back when I was in Liverpool. I'd do um, you know, an HIV clinic on a Wednesday and the CFS clinic on a Thursday. And, they couldn't be any more different in terms of the approach. I mean, in the HIV clinic, you've got a definite test. You do a test, yes, this patient has either got HIV or they haven't. Whereas CFS, ME, there's no test, there's no diagnostic biomarker. So the only way to make the diagnosis is is from the history. Having said that, the the pattern of symptoms is very characteristic in CFSME. So I think you can make, and, and we always felt in our clinic that, that you could make a, a positive diagnosis. Yes, you do have to do a few tests and make sure you're not missing something else, but the, the pattern of symptoms is so characteristic that, that I think you can make a, a a positive diagnosis. So it's a defined onset of fatigue, and it's it's often associated with some. Adverse life event, um, usually an infection, but sometimes with other adverse life events, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, nice to say so you have to have symptoms for four months, but in practice, we were often seeing people who had it for two or three months in the clinic in Liverpool. Um, The NICE guidelines, as I said, say specific onset of fatigue, it can be persistent or it can be recurrent. So Some people have good days and bad days. uh, And there's no other obvious explanation for the fatigue. (coughs) And it's disabling, as we've already heard. So people with with CFS have disabling fatigue. And one of the main features is this characteristic post-exertional malaise or fatigue. Doing things makes it worse, and that's very different. It's not like you go for a run and you feel tired at the end of a run. This, this, this um, post-exertional malaise is very different from that. Unlike the Fukuda criteria, and I said you only actually had to have one of the, all these various other symptoms, um, such as sleep disturbance, myalgia, etc. I'm not going to go through that list uh, extensively because I think it's more important to how we actually. To, to see how we actually diagnose it in practice. And to me, the, the, the critical features, and I think to most clinicians working with CFS, there are four features that go with the fatigue that, that are um, paramount. And If you don't have those, you would seriously question the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. And the first thing is this one called post-exertional fatigue or malaise. It's often colloquially known as payback. Um, and so what the patient will say is, I... You know, I, I, I had to go to my daughter's speech day or I had to um, uh, get up to go for an interview or something like that. And I was fine at the time, but then 24 hours later, I was completely crashed and, and I, you know, am then unwell for several days afterwards. So that's the classic description. Now, the important thing, of course, when you're taking a history from the patient is you mustn't put those words in the patient's mouth because so it, you, you sort of get various techniques to say, well, if you, you know, if you do something, does it make you feel better after that? Or does it make you feel worse? And, and it's usually inevitable they will say, no, I, I feel fine at the time, but then I have this payback several days later. So that's that's a really cardinal feature. The other cardinal feature is, is cognitive difficulties. Occasionally you see people without this, but a vast majority of people will have, again, what patients tend to describe as brain fog. And it's, it's not like dementia. It's not loss of short-term memory like i mean they may well have put short-term memory and concentration reasoning problems but it's very different people say you know i can't you know i couldn't even watch eastenders i can't concentrate enough to watch eastenders i can't read a book i can uh, you know read a, a tabloid paper um, they will often say they have dysphasia—that's that's word finding difficulties. They say my words come out jumbled up or in the, in the wrong order. <laughs> and people will say I, I do stupid things like you know I'll put the washing up in the fridge or I'll put the uh, <clears throat> my leftover food in the, in the dishwasher, etc. And brain fog is, rare, is Is probably one of the most disabling problems in terms of people getting back to work. Obviously, if if, if they're not manual workers, if they're <laughs> if they're office workers and things that to have the brain fog is 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 a really serious problem in terms of people getting back to work. So, that's, so one is payback, two is brain fog, three, sleep disturbance. Again, absolutely crucial. And the fatigue that people describe is not sleepiness. If somebody's saying to me, um, I feel sleepy, I'm falling asleep at work, I'm falling asleep watching the TV, um, then I'm really suspicious they've got some other diagnosis going on. The fatigue of CFSME is lassitude. It's lethargy. People give all sorts of very graphic descriptions. I feel like I've had the plug pulled out of me. Um, I, I feel I've just got no energy. I can't get up. Um, it's not falling asleep. If if daytime sleepiness or somnolence, as the official term is, the issue, then you have to think about other things. Could this patient have? Um, sleep apnea syndrome or narcolepsy or some other sleep disturbance. And, and my colleague, Julia Newton, is going to be talking <coughs> much more about sleep and, and, uh, and dizziness and things in, in her talk in a few weeks' time. I've mentioned a thing there called the Epworth score. That's a useful screening tool that we use. It's just a series of simple questions saying, uh, you know, when you are sitting in traffic lights in a car that's stopped, do you fall asleep? and you you grade your likelihood of falling asleep. And it's a a useful screening score that will suggest to us that somebody might have sleep apnea syndrome. That's a a very different condition when people are having disturbed sleep at night and, and falling asleep during the day. Um, so the cardinal feature is unrefreshing sleep. I'll say to people, you know, what? How do you feel when you when you do you feel you wake up refreshed in the morning, had a good night's sleep, and you know it's almost universal. People say, no, I've I, I, this is unrefreshing sleep. And the final one of the four big features of CFSME is pain. Um, Not everybody has it, but an awful lot of people will have it, and it's often myalgia, as in the original description, so muscular pain, or it's arthralgia. But patients, and patients may have tender muscles, but if you do, there's a specific blood test we do called the CPK, which is a a muscle, a chemical release from damaged muscles, and that's characteristically normal. So there isn't objective evidence of inflammation of the muscles, but the muscles are just tender. can be very generalized, um, and on the whole, it doesn't do too well with paracetamol or the normal pain-killing drugs that we use, like uh, ibuprofen, naproxen, naproxen, etc., um, it does usually respond better to the sort of painkillers we use for treating um, inflammation of nerves, so-called neuropathic pain. So drugs like gabapentin and pregabalin are quite helpful in this. Um, But the drugs are often not particularly well tolerated. And patients with ME-CFS are often receiving treatment in a pain clinic as well. And that can be difficult because Chronic pain and chronic fatigue syndrome are quite there's quite a lot of overlap between them, and we may be using slightly different techniques in the pain clinic from in the CFS clinic, and they may be although they may be fairly complementary, there may be differences between them as well. Um, So you'll often find if somebody's being seen already in a pain management program, then the CFS clinic is reluctant to take them on, and, and vice versa. So those are the symptoms. That's us getting the history from the patient. Then we're going to examine them, and usually the physical examination is normal. There's no characteristic abnormalities on physical examination. Occasionally, people may have some slight swollen glands, um, and we're going to look for other things to check. They haven't got um, oral thrush, which is a a sign of... of, um, either malnutrition or immune deficiency and so you know we're always thinking about other potential diagnoses and I'll, I'll show you a subsequent slide that gives a, a large number of the potential conditions we have to think about and have to exclude but we don't examine everybody and, and it's a sort of a bit of a question whether the patients expect to have a full physical examination whether we should do that in secondary care or whether the GP should have done that. Okay, so we've talked about the history, we've talked about the examination and now we've come to the tests, the investigations we're going to do and and as I've said this is completely different from HIV or viral hepatitis C or many of the other conditions that I deal with as an infectious disease physician, there is no diagnostic test, there's no biomarker. Um, And even very sophisticated tests, although we're seeing some patterns emerge now with all the research that's going on in this area, we still don't have a diagnostic test. So you can see the list of investigations, I'm not going to go through those in detail, but NICE recommends a a small number of investigations to exclude the more common things. Make sure um, that a patient isn't anemic, make sure that they don't have an underactive thyroid, make sure they don't have celiac disease. But on the whole, um, we'd restrict the test to a, fa- a fairly small number there and we wouldn't do all the sort of tests that are, are seen on this slide. Um, we don't x-ray everybody's chest, for example. But again, we're using a lot of clinical common sense. If somebody's got a chronic cough, clearly we'd be x-raying their chest. If they were anemic, we'd look for their their serum iron and B12 and things. If they've got profound autonomic symptoms, that's when they they get dizzy and and feel unwell when they stand up, then you maybe would ask for a tilt table. And so Julia Newton will be talking much more about that in in three weeks' time. We don't test everybody for HIV. We don't test for viral infections on the whole. A lot of people with CFSME will have had their illness triggered by a viral infection, but uh, we, we don't think that any of them have got ongoing viral infection, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. So finally we review the diagnosis and if the patient doesn't have the characteristic pattern and particularly if they don't have those four very fundamental features of payback, brain fog, pain and sleep disturbance we would seriously review the diagnosis. We'd look again much harder and maybe we would do more tests. If the patient has any what we call red flag features so features maybe suggesting there's something else serious going on here such as cancer or um, some chronic infection. So if they've got severe weight loss, big lymph glands, oral thrush, daytime sleepiness or chest pain or on exertion or anything. Or if the patient had abnormalities on physical examination or if any of our very limited number of tests as, re- as suggested by NICE um, give abnormal results, then we would go on and investigate further and review the diagnosis. So as I've said, and as we've heard from the former provost, this is a controversial area. And NICE put this statement out as saying, we, you know, we don't really understand what's going on. That We don't understand the mechanism that is producing all these symptoms. We can recognise the symptoms, but we don't have an explanation of them. And as I said, you know... What, right back in the 50s and 60s, there was a uh, an argument: is this primarily uh, a psychological condition or is it a physical condition? And these were the two extreme; these are the two extreme views that, that thankfully, fewer people would um, hold, but there are still people who hold these two extreme views. So, one view is that this is a purely physical problem, uh, and Psychological approaches to treatment and therapy have no role whatsoever to do with this condition. Um, the other extreme position is this is purely a psychiatric, psychological condition, and there isn't actually anything going on with the physiology of the body. And, and as I said, the, you know that. that is a sterile debate from my perspective. It, it's, it's held back a lot of research, it's held back a lot of clinical management, it's a, caused a lot of distress to to patients and to clinicians and researchers. And I think my... <clears throat> Tony Pinshaw was a very wise man. He was an, uh, an immunologist initially at St um, at Mary's and subsequently moved to the Barts and then was latterly the, the dean of the Peninsula Medical School. And uh, he actually supervised me when I was doing my research on... Um, HIV back in the um, in the in the mid 80s, and then I came across him again when he moved from uh, HIV into CFS, and he wrote this really good paper in Clinical Medicine, which is a journal of the Royal College of Physicians of London uh, in 2003, uh, and that, I'll just let you read that quote. Um, but, uh, and this is called the tale of two syndromes, and it was comparing and contrasting the uh, the research and the management and the approaches to HIV um, and and CFSME. Um, but it's say, it's it's this uh, <coughs> concept of his that it's so wrong to try and uh, make the two, the, the mind and the body, uh, as separate issues. So, do we know what causes CFSME? The answer is no. I mean, we, we know that there may be some genetic predisposition to it because there is commonly a family history. Um, and as you can see, they're more common in monozygotic twins than uh, identical twins than uh, <coughs> fraternal twins. There's been a lot of stuff done on, on uh, genotyping, so looking at gene studies to see if there is a, a common uh, genetic profile that predisposes, but there's nothing conclusive there. Then what kicks it off? So you may have a, predi- a genetic predisposition, but something will then um, precipitate it. And it usually seems to be infection, but it certainly, seems, it's certainly occurred after vaccination, so again implying there's some sort of immune hit that, that seems to... Uh, cause it, but it also can occur after stressful, uh, adverse life events. Um, sometimes it occurs after exposure to toxins, and you know, organophosphorus poisoning seems to produce quite commonly the symptoms of of CFSME. And often it's often it's more than one. It's often this concept of a double hit that somebody gets an infection in the context of an adverse life event or when they're working particularly hard. And then there are things that will make it worse. So, as I've said, when people have this conviction, a lot of people won't accept the diagnosis, even when it's absolutely clear to all the clinicians involved that this is what they've got. They're continually searching for something else. They're saying, you know, I don't believe in CFS. You know, you just haven't diagnosed my whatever they think that they've got. And that's a bad prognostic feature. So as I've said, there are a large number of conditions which will <coughs> precipitate it and they're all some of the ones that have been implicated and have listed on the slide. Um, I'll just talk about Lyme disease for a minute. This I could you know, give a whole lecture about the role of Lyme disease in chronic fatigue syndrome. Yes, Lyme disease certainly can trigger chronic fatigue syndrome, so post-Lyme chronic fatigue syndrome. But... Um, there doesn 't seem to be any evidence that it's chronic Lyme disease that's producing the symptoms, but that is again an, a hugely fraught and controversial area and as I've said the, the it's often a double hit concept you, you I mean I've looked after a number of elite sports players who have been training like mad for some particular um, event they get a viral infection they're forced to go back to training too quickly they will train for a few days, then get off sick again. They're then pressured to go back to training, go off sick again. And, and you can see the same thing happening in people at work uh, in high-pressure jobs. Uh, I looked after um, uh, a pharmaceutical representative a few years ago who had a very similar thing. She was Rep of the Year, a really high achiever, got a viral infection, went, felt she had to go back to work within a few days, went back, went off sick again. And that's a pattern you see time and time so. Um, you know, it 's clearly a combination of these things. I mentioned this very briefly um, a few years ago there was a lot of excitement that uh, and, and the people in the audience may well have heard of this There's, this was a, a virus called xenomurine retrovirus like virus I think it, it was a very <coughs> it was a very complex virus that was linked to chronic fatigue syndrome it was a vi- it was what 's called a retrovirus, so it was quite similar to the virus that Causes HIV. And it was found in about two thirds of specimens of people with CFS, but very few healthy controls. And and there was a huge industry immediately erupted in in the US to uh, start testing people for XMRV, to start clinical trials with some of the anti HIV drugs. Um, And it just gives a good example about people just, you know, because everybody is so desperate to find a cure, people jumped into it so quickly. Uh, and unfortunately, within a year, the, all the hopes were, were dashed and it was shown that it was, um, <coughs> it was completely um, uh, spurious and it was all due to contamination of samples. So the original paper was published in 2009. Uh, um, immediately, four studies were published which showed uh, no correlation between XMRV. <coughs> and then there was a huge study in the States um, with samples sent to nine different labs, and eventually the, the paper was retracted by science. So it was a, a salutary challenge. If, you, if you're interested in it, the, um, that article, which is in science, is, uh, is a very good story about it. And, and in fact, one of the researchers ended up in, in prison. Um, you know, There's just a lot of stuff about it. So it's, um, it's a sad tale. So what, what can we say about chronic fatigue syndrome in terms of how it's caused? And I... Although there are some colleagues who don't like the term medically unexplained syndrome. I, I actually think it's, it's quite a good term because it does state what we're really dealing with. We don't have a mechanism. You know. When I'm in the HIV clinic, I can say to a patient, you know, this is your virus, this is what it's doing to your immune system, this is how we'll monitor it, and this is how we'll treat it. If I'm in the days when I used to do more general medicine, and I'd be in the in the cardiac clinic, I can say to a patient, you know, you've got angina because your coronary arteries are furred up with atheroma. Uh, therefore, you're not getting enough blood supply to the heart. So I can explain that the mechanism, the basic fundamental thing that's producing their symptoms. And in CFS, I can't do that. You know, I, I, I don't know, and I don't I don't think there's anybody who knows why people get brain fog. Why do they get the pain? Why do they get the fatigue? So the underlying mechanism is not understood, and there are a number of other conditions in uh, in medicine where that is the case. There are a number of other medically unexplained syndromes, such as irritable bowel syndrome. This condition where you get alternating abdominal pain, diarrhea, uh, constipation. Again, it's medically unexplained. We don't have you know. You can do biopsies, you can do lots of tests on the bowel, but we can't identify definite abnormality. One of the conditions I always, when I have some of my colleagues who are, you know, slightly sceptical about CFS, and unfortunately there are people around who are still sceptical despite all the research, um, I'll say to them, well, what about tension headache? You know, we've all had headaches. Um, Everyone in this room will have suffered from a headache at the time and, and it's very easy to imagine why somebody should have a headache if they've got a brain tumour or if they've got meningitis or if they've got a hangover or if they've been for a run and got dehydrated. But most of us will get headaches from time to time without any of those precipitants um, and that's a medically unexplained syndrome. It's called tension headache but you know, nobody actually thinks there's really lots of little arrows running up and down the back of your neck. It's great for selling Nurofen on the TV, but it's not actually telling us what's going on. So tension headache, another medically unexplained symptom or syndrome. Uh, and, and so there are a number of those. And, and quite often people will have more than one, so people with CFS are more likely to have irritable bowel syndrome as well. So... the. <sighs> What we call a differential diagnosis, that is the other possible things that could be going on. And again, I'm not going to go through this list uh, in great detail, but it's just to give you a flavour of the large number of things that we just consider uh, when we see a patient with CFS. You know, could it be an infection going on? Could they have TB? Could they have HIV? And I think in 30 years of practice, I've seen one patient referred to the CFS clinic who did turn out to have HIV but, but had very clear symptoms. You know, he had oral candida. There was no doubt that this, you, know, you just had to read the referral letter to see that he'd been probably sent to the wrong clinic. Um, you know, could they have an underlying cancer like a, a, a leukemia or a lymphoma? Could they have Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis? So you have to think about all these things. But on the whole, I'd say the pattern of symptoms of CFS is very characteristic. You know, people who have fatigue with cancer do not feel the same as people who have fatigue with, with CFS. And we've heard a lot about the controversy of you know, coexisting mental health problems. And, it, you know, most people with a chronic illness, whether it's cancer, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis, whether it's badly controlled diabetes, they are a much greater risk of getting depression as a result of that. Um, so it may be that depression is just a normal reaction to chronic s- symptoms of CFS. This is very different from endogenous depression. Again, in 30 years, I've probably seen about a handful, half a dozen patients where I believe they, their main problem was actually endogenous depression, and they, you know, they respond very well to antidepressive um, tablets. But the symptoms of that are totally different from those of CFS. But, perhaps, but certainly depression is maybe part of the symptomatology, just because uh, you know, people have had their lives wrecked by this condition, so it's not at all surprising that they, and, and often their carers as well, will get depressed, and, and certainly a, a, a study we did in Liverpool a few years ago showed that of our the referrals to us, a third of p- people were on antidepressants when we saw them, a third had had them at some time in the past, and only, only one in three had never had antidepressants. So the diagnosis is often made in, in primary care um, and, and then they're referred from primary care to a, <clears throat> to a secondary care um, specialist service uh, and seen by people like me or by a neurologist or, or some other clinician running the, the secondary <coughs> care service and they say that one of the important things we need to do is, is make a diagnosis. And then we assess people, the NICE guidelines give us some quite good uh, ideas about uh, the the grade, whether it's mild, where people are still functioning pretty well, but often using the weekend to catch up on their exhaustion. Uh, Moderate, where they're pretty restricted in what they do. And then severe, when people are pretty much housebound. So I've already alluded to the fact we don't know the mechanism of this, and and one of the holy grails is to... to, um, so-called phenotype the disease. So that means, phenotyping means actually defining different categories of the disease because is, is it all the same thing? Um, and I, you know, my view is it probably isn't. There probably are different uh, types of CFS that are all lumped together because our diagnostic tools for distinguishing between them are, are blunt instruments. And as I've said, we don't have a, a biomarker, we don't have a test to distinguish them. So the only way to distinguish them is by looking at symptom patterns and, and that is clearly a blunt instrument so our management you know how what can we do for patients because we don't have a drug we don't have a pharmacologic agent so we have to have a sympathetic open approach be open-minded about it um, be quite clear that this is a, a real condition that this is causing a huge amount of distress and disability in, in our clinic the the or in any secondary care clinic, the main things we need to do is establish the diagnosis, exclude other possibilities, um, and then for some people it may be appropriate to refer them on for specialised management techniques. And then the final thing is to to make sure that we offer the best advice about um, managing other symptoms. And as I said, the critical thing is there's no pharmacologic treatment. There is no pill that will cure or even improve the prognosis of CFsME. we can use our normal pills, our painkillers, our anti-nausea pills, etc., to manage coexisting symptoms, but there is no pharmacologic therapy for fatigue, for brain fog, for payback, etc. And this was a study published a few years ago now that suggested that approaches that were helpful were this thing called graded exercise therapy and cognitive behavior therapy again very controversial in the treatment of CFSME but and, and I've always felt slightly uncomfortable about talking to patients I've spent a lot of time talking to them saying you know we don't believe this is a psychological problem but we're now going to use a psychological technique to treat it and that you know feels kind of odd but uh, the the justification for that is that you know, we use cognitive behaviour therapy in particular, maybe less so graded exercise, but cognitive behaviour therapy is used for people with symptoms of cancer, for people with symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis, for people with um, symptoms of many other chronic conditions, and it helps symptom control. And nobody's ever suggested that cancer or rheumatoid arthritis is, quotes, all in the mind. So it's, it's not illogical to use these approaches. And then... Uh, and this was supported by this big trial. that was sponsored by the MRC, very expensive trial, uh, where patients were randomised to standard medical treatment to a thing called pacing therapy, to cognitive behaviour therapy and to graded exercise therapy. And it did show that both cognitive behaviour therapy and graded exercise were uh, improvements over standard medical care or, or adaptive pacing, as it was called. It's been a very controversial trial and is still subject to to causing a lot of high emotions, but um, it has we were already using in our clinic we were already using a lot of CBT and getting um, reasonably good results from that so it, it did support what we were doing it did support what the NICE guidelines had said in two thousand and seven so I'm going to finish there and, just, uh, <clears throat> and hopefully have some questions and discussion, but just the, the main take-home message is the strict definition of CFS I ME mean, remains controversial, um, but it doesn't really matter when you're treating people. You know All these definitions are fine for clinical trials. What matters is your assessment of the patient and have they got CFS or not. Um, the controversy is linked with this mind-body debate over the causation, over the mechanism. And as I've said, the definitions are really needed more for research than clinical management. There's no biomarker, there's no test. But the diagnosis is a positive one made on the basis of an of a, a, a appropriate history. And often, if a patient's had it for a long time, there's no, there's no really concept of it being anything else. And the pattern of fatigue differs from other conditions. Um, but you obviously still need to consider other conditions because even if somebody's already got CFS, somebody with CFS can turn up a few weeks later with cancer or with something else. You know, it, it does, it's no guarantee they won't get something else. So every symptom, any new symptom, has to be evaluated with an open mind. Um, we don't know yet whether everybody in the secondary care clinics has to be seen by a physician or not. Some, uh, <coughs> but I but, uh, say so that remains a, a question that hasn't really been researched. And I say at the moment, I think we all need to have an open mind about the the basic disease mechanisms. And making a diagnosis is part... A lot of people say, well, I'm relieved, you know, I've now got a definite diagnosis. So I'll just close by thanking two organisations. First of all, the British Association for Chronic Fatigue and ME, which is the professional organisation of clinicians who look after this condition. Um, And secondly, Action for ME, who... (coughs) um, uh, I, I work very closely with them as their medical advisor. Um, and finally, just to thank you for coming on this sunny day and thank Gresham College again for inviting me to give the talk. Thanks. For all information, please visit gresham.ac.uk.